0: Hi there. This is Lenny from the Podvocate. It's Veterans Day, and this year we at the Podvocate wanted to draw special attention to the conclusion of the Afghanistan conflict that has defined an entire generation of service members. Our involvement in Afghanistan spanned 20 years. Some of you listening right now likely don't remember the start of the conflict. Meanwhile, other of you might have spent some time there yourselves. I don't think there is any current or former service member that would call our departure from Afghanistan graceful. And for many, it has left them with mixed feelings. Many of our friends and loved ones died or were seriously injured simply trying to make daily life in Afghanistan better. Building roads, bridges, and schools. Billions of dollars and thousands of lives spent for this cause. Some may point to bloated military contractor payouts or casually toss around the term military industrial complex to denigrate or otherwise lessen the intent of our service members abroad would rather focus on partisanship to blame the trump administration for the plan's creation or to blame the biden administration for its execution some point to the lack of military experience as a criticism for both of these presidents to that point it's important to note that the 117th Congress has the lowest number of military veterans in its ranks since World War II. All evidence of a growing gap between our military and civilian culture here in the United States. So this Veterans Day, put politics aside and understand that while veterans might not share all your opinions, they still signed up to protect them. And for that, we thank you. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvkit. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvokit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodkit.com to check out our social media pages. My name is Lenny Reinhardt, and today I am joined by retired U.S. Army Colonel Paul Canwell. Paul has served as Assistant Director for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as well as the Director of the Office of Legal Policy for the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. In his 25-year military career as an active duty JAG officer, he has multiple deployments to the Middle East, including one such tour in Afghanistan. Now he serves as Distinguished Professor-in-Residence and as the Executive Director of the Rule of Law Institute here at Loyola. Thank you so much for joining us on our episode here today. Uh, We are discussing sort of an overall broad retrospective on the conflict in Afghanistan. And I'd like to explore that through your lens during your time in the military and specifically your time in Afghanistan.
1: First of all, thanks Lenny, it's a a pleasure to join you. Uh, And with Veterans Day just around the corner, let me say happy Veterans Day to you, to all of our veterans out there. Uh, and then a special note of thanks to our military families. Uh, as you know well, uh, guys guys like you and me love what we do. We'll, we'll, we're well-resourced, we're well-trained, we'll, we're well we have great jobs, we work with great people, but our families all suffer the consequences of our service. So I am indebted to my family, I know you are to yours, and I'd like to thank military families everywhere for all they've given to our great nation. So, sure. yeah, So have, so having said that, Uh, I am a graduate of Loyola University, Chicago. Uh, I went to the uh, the College of Arts and Sciences and and, and graduated up north in 1983. uh, And then I attended Loyola Law School there after graduating in 1986 and took up military service fairly shortly thereafter that.
0: And at that period of time, what was the, we'll call it the global landscape? What were the, what was the quote unquote trouble ahead at that time?
1: Well, I I think sort of ironically, there really wasn't any trouble on the horizon because uh, I was preparing to come in in late uh, mid to late 1989. uh, And of course, the wall was either just had just come down or was coming down. So everything looked fairly rosy. Uh, You know, we still had high numbers of people in uniform, um, but. Uh, the specter of the, the the great hegemon, the Soviet Union, really was sort of uh, knocked out of the way with the with the wall coming down, and everything seemed uh, fairly fairly bright, and and we didn't really see uh, that we didn't see the hordes coming through the Fulda Gap, uh, et cetera. It seemed like the world could be a fairly peaceful place for a, a period of time. Uh, so, and you know, and then of course I got over to Germany in. Uh, April of 1990 after basic training and all of that kind of stuff and uh, about five months later I was in uh, uh, I was in Kuwait along with the with the rest of the folks in the Persian Gulf War so uh, you know it seemed like a peaceful time but obviously things can't change quickly
0: and what was your position back then what was your job title so to speak
1: as most new judge advocates do and i had been in the army for only a short period of time i went into the main legal uh, assistance office with the first armored division headquarters in uh, in germany and did primarily claims work so compensated military families for loss of uh, their household goods shipments uh, dealing with maneuver damage uh, in local towns and villages across germany when uh, the us army and other forces were doing uh, military maneuvers training exercises et cetera. so things of that nature
0: And you mentioned the Soviets with the main purpose of our conversation today being on Afghanistan. And I was wondering if you could provide any sort of insight into sort of the historical nature of Afghanistan as far as that that period of time.
1: Sure, Well, the Soviets had a a long history in Afghanistan. As you probably know, Afghanistan's history is uh, is very fractious one, is a very fractious one. It is a, a, a part of the world uh where uh, tribal cultures tend to rule uh and consequently uh afghanistan was not such a nation as it was a blending of different tribes and uh and and groups uh etc they had periods of of relative peace throughout their history they they've had single rulers for some significant periods of time uh but most of their history particularly their recent history uh, has been a series of stops and starts and civil wars and uh and afghan anglo wars uh, in the 1800s and and beyond so I, I think the soviets really sort of entered the period uh entered the one of the, the modern periods of afghan history in sort of the mid to late 1970s uh, when they really started to exert their influence on uh, the new afghanistan leader started to train uh afghan troops uh uh, did significant reconstructive and development work uh in uh in afghanistan really advancing afghanistan's uh culture modernizing the country uh etc so that's really that that was sort of what they were doing um from you know 1978 uh, and on they had largely Uh, were were installing and had installed sort of a a Marxist-Leninist agenda. They had replaced a lot of religious and uh, traditional laws with Marxist-Leninist measures. They placed mosques off limits. Uh, They they did forbid forced marriages. They did allow women to vote. They did educate and empower women. They uh, engaged in land reform, although atheism sort of became the the religion of, uh, of choice there. But as far as infrastructure and building and modernization, uh, et cetera, mining, gas, all of those uh, sorts of things, the Soviets uh, really invested a lot of time uh, and effort into building Afghanistan during that particular period of time. Things uh, started to fall apart uh, at the end of the decade where some folks really thought the Russian influence was too great. Uh, Totalitarianism was sort of um, uh becoming a part of daily structure there uh the soviet leaders were imprisoning a lot of the elites uh, particularly the academic elites in uh, afghanistan at the in the end of the 1979 or so Uh, and much of the afghanistan army which had been trained by the soviets decided to either desert uh, or to become part of factions that were starting to fight back against uh, the russians so you know late 1979 uh, 1980 or so The Russians uh, invade and wound up spending, I guess, roughly about uh, nine years or so uh, occupying uh, what portions of uh, of Afghanistan they could hold on to.
0: Now, you mentioned these these factions, is that what sort of led to the rise of Al Qaeda and all those other groups?
1: Uh, they they came a little bit later. Uh, yeah, we saw that the Taliban uh, the, the Taliban arise in, in earnest in about 1994, uh, I think. But I, I think the factions that I was referring to were the Pashtuns, for example, the Tajiks, uh, f- uh, folks who had been in these particular areas for a long period of time. Uh, and recall, of course, that when the Soviets were involved in Afghan the first in Afghanistan the first time around. Uh, in the late 1800s, uh, Afghanistan was sort of caught in between the two great empires at the time, the British Empire on one hand, the Soviet Empire on the other, uh, and by about the late 1800s or so, it was, assen- it was essentially the British and the Soviets who drew the modern borders of, of what we now know as uh, Afghanistan, the Durand Line, for example, and the barriers, and barriers from China on the east to uh, Iran on, on the west. So they had, they had been around for some time. Uh, but yes, other factions in the late 1980s, uh, for example, and then throughout the 1990s start to emerge. Uh, we have the Taliban, especially. We have Al Qaeda as a subset subset of the Taliban. Uh, and then we've got groups like the United Front, the Northern Alliance, uh, wow. et cetera, growing in influence at, at, at various times. So, um, you know, even after the uh, they thought that they should have sort of push the Russian influence away in the late 1970s, the Soviet Union invades again, uh, and everything really sort of goes to to hell there. And there's uh, periods of great instability that really exists to uh, the, the very present modern day.
0: At a certain point, there was a series of terror attacks in the 90s. Uh, I think about the first World Trade Center bombing, the bombings of the embassies when those events took place, could you tell that there was something on the horizon?
1: You know, quite quite honestly, um, being from from my own personal view, for example, you know, after Oper- Operation Desert Storm, and and this is to sort of build sort of the the strategic sort of global the global concept, at least from a from a soldier in the U.S. Army at the time, uh, we have the big buildup in the Persian Gulf War. We create this great. Uh, great coalition uh, it does its job in a fairly short period of time however uh, uh, you know which which works out great and then we we essentially come back and uh and in the united states we have extensive military drawdowns right we don't have the great soviet hegemon to be fearful of any longer so america's political leaders really started to pare down the active mm-hmm. um, active military force so it was sort of a weird period uh, serving in the in the '90s uh, because we you know we still did all the training that that we were supposed to do. We still had fears uh, of of many military services uh, of countries throughout the the region, and of course the Middle East had really started to to warm up, uh, if you will. But we really didn't see, uh, at least from where I sat, we really didn't see, uh, you know, like the the great emerging threat. There wasn't a superpower yet on the horizon. Um, we were were we concerned about things like uh, terrorism? Uh, absolutely. But like you say, the you know the Cole, especially, and then the uh, embassy bombings uh, just uh, just before really 9-11 really started to uh, to to wake everybody up. And sort of to tie it into Afghanistan, I think one of the really really interesting things is in this strange sort of way uh Massoud and the Northern Alliance were were sort of a check on Osama bin Laden uh, and some of the other actors in uh, that were mostly in Pakistan and throughout Afghanistan at the time because they were they were fearful of Massoud and his tactics and and they, uh, they, were, they were a small band, of course, but they were very, very skilled at what they did. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, Massoud kept uh, obama Osama bin Laden. Uh, in check until his assassination in early September of, uh, 2001, just almost immediately prior to, uh, the attacks on, on the United States. So I think the assassination of Massoud and, and his absence thereafter is really one of the things that sort of lifted the curtain on the, on the modern, uh, terrorist experience, uh, if you will, and, and sort of leads us to where we remain today.
0: So speaking of September 11th, 2001, Talk me through your perspective being in, like I was in seventh grade, you know, science class was interrupted. I think we were dissecting crickets that day. Walk me through what you remember.
1: Sure. So at, so at that period of time, I think, I, I think I had probably, I think I was a major at that, that period of time. We lived in Würzburg, Germany, much of much of the U.S. forces in eastern Germany, particularly in the Middle Franconia and Bavarian areas, were concentrated, concentrated under uh, First Infantry Division headquarters. Then, uh, and I was serving as a judge advocate. Of course, I was either the—I think I was the chief of military justice. So I was in charge of prosecutions throughout that the division footprint. So roughly for half of uh, for half of the, the U.S. Army in, in in Germany. So what I did was mostly. Uh, criminal work and coordinating prosecutions and and all those sorts of things and i remember that i remember the day vividly uh, because uh, we you know everyone we had we had arrived at the point where everyone had cnn on the, on the televisions in their offices all the time right that was sort of how we monitored what what news was happening particularly because we were uh, over in germany and we're not in the continental united states but it was uh, by then early afternoon uh, in Germany, and we were getting the news, at least from where I was, you know, across the street from the division headquarters. We were getting the news the same way that everybody else was. Right. Uh, the television, the television accounts, the speculation as to uh, what had happened was it a fire, was it a small plane, was it a large plane, uh, you know? And it and it started to build from there, uh, and the and the reaction was obviously uh, profound, uh, as, as you can imagine. We locked down. Uh, the installation. Uh, all of the military kids were either at on-base schools or were at schools which might have been still U.S. military schools, but outside of the gates, right. uh, if you will. So there were lockdowns happening all over the place. Um, it was very, very hard to communicate because we didn't have the communications infrastructure that we have now. So you know, things like the internet were going uh, were going down. Uh, folks were unable to communicate, so it, it was like you would think it was sort of mass confusion. Yeah. Uh, everyone, you know, everyone is worried about where their spouses and children are. Spouses are worried about where their husbands or wives in uniform are, uh, and then of course everyone's profoundly concerned about security, uh, what threats may be coming, and what to do next. So it was a, you know, it was a, a, a pretty active twenty-four hour period of time where we're gaining accountability. Trying to go assemble as much information as we can, and then the division leadership sort of decides, uh, and of of course in, in coordination with higher headquarters and uh, and others about you know what, what will be the reactions from here, what's our what's our posture. So I remember that I remember the day vividly, uh, and my recollections are probably similar to those of millions and millions of Americans who stared at the TV. Uh, set and and said to themselves, you know, what the hell is going on? You know, what, what what's happening here? So that's that's those are sort of my recollections of that day.
0: Now, going forward from that day, can you speak as to anything about the the mood or the tone as far as once it was clear that we were going to Afghanistan?
1: Fundamentally, I I think it, it's good to make one point at the outset. I, I don't think that Bin Laden and the and the people who perpetrated these acts uh, believed that they were going to get a fight on their hands. I, I think their primary motivation was to hit us hard one more time, uh, in the belief that we would say, "Okay, we're pulling all of our people out of the Middle East uh, and and other places that seem to offend." Uh, the you know the, the bad guys. So I think that's the reaction that they thought that they were going to get from us. I I do not think that they were in that they believed they were in for a fight. Uh, and it you know as you know now our, our leadership was resolute. And they were they were going to get a fight. Uh, and the and exactly what you would anticipate happening uh, started to happen. Uh, though organizations like the Army and and the Department of Defense are big organizations, they are fairly nimble, uh, and they can move quickly. So. Uh, though we had been doing some counterterrorism and counterinsurgency training and and stuff like that particularly in our combat training centers at uh, out at Fort Irwin and, and down at JRTC in uh, in Louisiana uh, we you know we had been done doing those sorts of things and and we were ready to go so uh, i think there was uh, there we went into the deliberate planning and and preparation mode where where people figured there are going to be units going We just go into, we have to figure out which which those units are, who are the people, uh, and you start assigning your assets to those particular missions. So, as everything begins happening in September and October uh, of uh, of 2001, the the picture starts to become more clear. We we know that something significant is likely to occur. Mm
0: -hmm. And at what point did you find yourself in Afghanistan?
1: It was not until, uh, it was not until many years uh, later. Um, you know, the, the army leadership in, in consultation with the leadership of the other services, the chairman of the Joint chiefs, et cetera, decides which units are going where, uh, what functions they're, they're going to perform, uh, et cetera. And I was a member of the staff of a, me- a large mechanized infantry division. Uh, and you know, and we still had our missions in in Europe, uh, and uh, we wound up staying put for uh, a fairly significant period of time. So I left Germany in 2003, uh, went to Command and General Staff College from 2003 to 2004, and then wound up uh, back at the uh, at the JAG School in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, teaching uh, and doing other things for a couple of years before finally finding my way to. Uh, Afghanistan in the summer of 2006. And then I remained in theater there until the summer of 2007.
0: At that time in 2006, can you share with us sort of the environment at that point in time?
1: The theater had changed a lot from the, you know, from the entry uh, in, uh, in October of 2011 uh, uh, or 2001, I'm sorry, uh of the you know US and British special forces and and those types of operations going on and then the uh, induction of more uh, and larger uh, combat forces the theater by 2003 had started even by 2003 had started to change its scope a little bit uh we had had the bond conference by then so we had a very very robust nato presence uh and uh, commitment to operations in Afghanistan. It was still called Operation Enduring Freedom, at least on the US side of the house at that particular time. Uh, you know, By 2003, uh, the NATO International Security Assistance Force, or ISAF, had been placed in control of parts of the country. They had provincial reconstruction teams who were doing not only security work, but were doing reconstruction work, uh, et cetera. So the atmosphere, even in a couple of years, changed from dynamic combat, uh, if you will, Uh, to, in many places, a focus away from combat, trying to uh, enable uh, the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Security Forces, uh, create an Afghan government, et cetera, capable of some sort of self-rule, to do counter-drug operations, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, And by the time I got to Afghanistan in the summer of 2006, ISAF had taken on larger roles throughout the country. We had uh, many, many more provincial reconstruction teams. I think there were probably 40 or thereabouts at that point, 40 or 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 thereabouts a number operating all over uh, the country. And then even by October uh, of that particular year, ISAF was in command essentially of the entire uh, of the entire theater with 45 or 46 provincial reconstruction teams, about 140 thousand NATO troops, uh, et cetera. So the theater really changed a lot by the time uh, that I got there. Uh, and then the largest change really for me was when I first arrived, I was a member of the staff. Uh, I was the number one or number two lawyer on this staff of what they then called Combined Forces Command Afghanistan, uh, which was running regional command East had components of the 10th Mountain Division as most of its combat force uh, and was under the command of a, a three-star U.S. Army general, Carl Eikenberry, who ultimately became uh, ambassador to Afghanistan at a later point. Uh, and then just a few months later, I actually moved off of the U.S. compound on Camp Eggers, where I had lived and worked, across the street to the International Security uh, Assistance uh, Force headquarters, and was actually the member of a NATO staff, uh, and was the the, lead, the principal legal advisor to the UK British four-star, who was, the, uh, who was the commander for the entire theater of operations. So it really changed a lot, uh, becoming a real coalition operation in a relatively short period of time.
0: Okay, so how did we get from point A, being the situation as it was in 2001, to point B, where you just described? How did that transformation take place?
1: Uh, recall that we have the uh, authorization for the use of military force, uh, which is given by the United States Congress uh, to the to the President and the Commander-in-Chief. I think that was September 18th or so of, of 2001. Very shortly thereafter, we have U.S. and British bombers in the sky dropping bombs on all of the bad guys over there. We've got U.S. and British Special Forces troops on the ground operating in, with, uh, in, in conjunction with the Northern Alliance, which is Massoud's uh, still exist in fighting force. The Pashtuns were working them uh, w- with them as well. And by November of 2001, the Taliban is in complete retreat. Um, one of the northern alliances and, and, and US allies at the time, Dostrom, a, a, a Tajik uh, combat leader, had defeated them summarily at mazar sharif which is sort of one of their uh, sim- symbolic uh, headquarters. Uh, and then they, then the Taliban really was in uh, in, in full retreat by December of 2001. Uh, you'll all recall, I'm sure, that Osama bin Laden escaped U.S. clutches at Torabora in December of 2001, and they all, the Taliban, uh, bin Laden, etc. They all escaped into uh, into Pakistan, particularly the federally administered tribal areas that they, um, at the border of, of uh, Afghanistan. So. You know, we've got the end of the Taliban by about 2001. Um, 2002 was sort of an up and down year. Force operation Anaconda was one of the biggest military operations we have had uh, since uh, since Torabora. But really, reconstruction sort of started in 2002. The U.S. is appropriating large sums of money. I think 38 billion dollars or so in in 2002 for reconstruction stuff. Uh, We've got a uh, a big, loyal uh, loyal Jirga, uh, which essentially appointed uh, Hamid Karzai uh, to be president. Uh, The Northern Alliance remained political players on the scene as well, engaging in some form of uh, governance. And as I indicated, the provincial reconstruction teams that NATO was leading uh, were operating uh, all over the country. By May of 2003, we have the president's banner mission accomplished. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, is preparing combat operations uh, over. And then in August of 2003, NATO uh, ISAF really took over much of the country to the point where I noted earlier where we had 51 nations involved and about 140,000 coalition troops over there. Uh, The Afghan constitution is signed in in 2004. Uh, It creates a a fairly strong presidential system. Intended to unite many of the ethnic groups there, and it was considered really a good step toward democracy, with the hope of having national elections. Zal uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, who was the, the uh, President Biden's special envoy to Afghanistan here during the uh, during the withdrawal, was then U.S. Ambas- ambassador uh, to Afghanistan, uh, and President Karzai became ultimately the first democratically elected uh, president uh, of Afghanistan. But by 2004, bin Laden surfaces again, just before the uh, elections and makes a a very well televised uh, statement about how the US and other allies are going to regret their operations uh, in Afghanistan uh, and elsewhere. And really uh, by 2006, July uh, particularly, uh, we see a a very bloody resurgence in in both Taliban, Al-Qaeda, in uh, all sorts of uh, terrorism uh, activities. So that's sort of, I think that sort of brings us around to now we've married up the command structure with the, uh, with the situation on the ground, if that helps.
0: Thinking about your role, you mentioned a few things about sort of the restructuring, rebuilding. One of the things that Afghanistan has been sort of viewed at is sort of this, people call it an experiment, people call it all sorts of things, but as far as just nation building in general. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. What do you say to people that are critical of that sort of method?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, right? You know, we we knew or should have known what Afghanistan was like. Indeed, it, it has been called the, uh, the the ruin of empires. Uh, I mean, the, you know, every every everyone who's been in Afghanistan, who tried to control Afghanistan, who has failed in their attempts to do it. Uh, but you know, ours was a justified response to what the terrorist groups had done to us. From there, uh, so uh, of course, if you're going to fight somewhere, you know the old adage: "You you broke it, you bought it." Uh, thing sort sort of comes to mind. So we were there. We were. We did not want it to become a safe haven for terrorism again. So so you have to make these choices, and and this is what we we pay our national leaders and international leaders to do: to decide what it is, what what method they're. Uh, they're going to use. Um, you, you, I, th- I think you can be you can be critical of the U.S. and others in in a, in a couple of main ways. We probably tried to move too quickly toward uh, U.S. style democracy and governance. Right, recognizing the history of Afghanistan, you know that it's it is a very tribal uh, culture. Um, it's it's a very old culture, uh, and things have have worked there in their own ways. Uh, for, for hundreds, if not, if not thousands of years. So it might be a bit naive to believe that we can roll in, we can use a U.S. style of, of constitution. People are going to vote in, uh, in elections and everything is going to work out smoothly. Uh, you know, when, when you realize that the Afghans all, no matter where they were euphemistically referred to President Karzai as the mayor of Kabul, you start to get an idea that you know, that that is not the kind of culture. That is not the kind of culture, a country that's going to have a centralized government in the capital, et cetera. So, uh, you know, we we probably overreached there uh, a little bit. Um, you know, things may have worked out a lot better. And and the, you know, our uh, in, in the current day, a lot of people are blaming the Afghan National Army, the Afghan Security Forces, the Afghan political leadership for not doing their jobs, but. I'll tell you, I've looked at uh, Council on Foreign Relations reports from 2003 and 2004 and 2008 and 2010, and they all note the same things. The, Af-Net, the Afghan National Security Forces aren't working and aren't going to work. Uh, you know, they're too, They were too dependent then and at the end were too dependent on US leadership and US money. They had flawed command structures. Uh, they were too, too bureaucratically heavy at the top with leaders, and they were too weak at the bottom. Uh, there was too much political interference from us and others. There was really no coordination between the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, and the National Directorate of Security, which is sort of the third arm of the armed forces over there, and had been the former secret police. So you you have all of these things, and and of course they um, they they coalesce to provide a, a really really challenging uh, in, in environment, one that really didn't it didn't really work since you know 2001 and obviously it isn't isn't working now you know the interesting conundrum now is that uh, the the old saying be careful of what you wish for the taliban wanted it back the taliban have it back now and if you read the newspapers today you can see how gravely they're fighting against al qaeda and the other extremist organizations in the theater and are trying to to regain control over it all so it, it's quite ironic how it how it has developed and and how it's resulted or where it's resulted.
0: There are a couple other controversies that are widely associated with the global war on terror, uh, the conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, One of them is the aspect of drone warfare. Uh, There's a few principles of international law that are called into play when you think about drone warfare, the principle of distinction, for example, being one of them. Uh, Can you talk about this controversy and your perspective on drone warfare in general? Uh, Yeah,
1: the the drone piece is an interesting one. Uh, And for most of the year that I spent in Afghanistan, I was the chief of international law, and I was the uh, attorney who was involved in our kinetic targeting uh, operations. Um, It may surprise some of your uh, listeners to know that uh, there are there are um, they're obviously classified in, in, in some instances, but there are very, very rigorous checks and balances, uh, oversights, requirements, uh, et, et cetera, in the targeting process that the US and, and some other coalition uh, forces use. Um, we are very, very precise in what we do. We're very, very careful. We take some, We take a long time sometimes, sometimes too long, uh in order to maintain to ensure that we know who we're going after that we won't uh, cause collateral damage that we won't hit cultural sites or objects and and and, uh and and stuff like that uh so it 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 is a it's a it's a unique process but it it's an it's a necessary process uh and and the process is very demanding because it requires all sorts of intelligence uh, and sometimes it requires large elements of, of human uh, intelligence. Uh, you know, it's nice when we have signals, intelligence like signals from, uh, sub- from cellular uh, telephones, for example. Uh, it's nice when we have uh, pictures from satellites uh, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, we, we always tried, uh, and I'll use this term because uh, the generals have used it recently in their discussions about the most recent strike in Afghanistan, uh, patterns of life. Um, you know, one of, one of the really interesting things about fighting in a place like Afghanistan is that there are no uniquely military structures in Afghanistan. There, there is no Fort Stewart, Georgia of Afghanistan, where you've got this clearly defined compound with, with fences around it, and you can see military equipment. Uh, and you know that there are probably are not women and children there uh, and you know that there are not churches or anything else around in afghanistan they do things exactly the opposite uh, they tend to uh, their leaders tend to congregate in areas uh, near madrasas or schools training grounds there are cultural objects around there are mosques etc so so doing doing targeting operations uh, in an environment like that is very very difficult so you need all of this intelligence you need forces on the ground you need forward observers to be able to help out with uh, with getting the correct grids uh, grid uh locations to uh, to folks and all of those sorts of things uh you know we went so far at one point when i first got to afghanistan to have a meeting with the international committee of the red cross and we did this with the, with the blessing of the uk four star um commander to sit down with the International Committee for the Red Cross and describe for them how our targeting operations work and the care that we were taking uh, in, in vetting the targets, uh, in, uh, in in uh, determining, uh, you know, in looking at the patterns of life to make sure that we didn't have women and children around, to look what happens at night, what happens in the morning, what happens in the afternoon to determine, uh, you know, whether there are people around, to, to look at the blast radiuses of various munitions that we use, et cetera. We went through all of those sorts of things because we wanted the folks on the ground to know uh, how important it is that we do these things correctly, and that turned out to be a, a, a pivotal, uh, a pivotal sort of political uh, uh, development uh, be, because the the ICRC was able to communicate with local nationals, with Afghans, and say, look, you know, they're not doing this on purpose. They're not doing this indiscriminately. They're doing it uh, in in the best fashion they can. So that's a long lead-in to. Uh, to the, the main point in response to your question, which is, I'm not sure, and I'll go so far as to say, I don't think we can just use over-the-horizon technologies uh, to combat these these types of threat. The the irregular forces where we don't have intelligence on the ground, where we don't have surveillance, where we don't have reconnaissance, where we don't have these things, it's going to be very, very difficult to uh, to prosecute. Those sorts of targets, and and to prosecute a counterinsurgency or or uh, counterintelligence kind of mission, and of course, in the last strike in Afghanistan, we saw uh, certainly some of that perhaps come to the fore.
0: The other controversy I wanted to talk about was that of Guantanamo. There's been a lot of conversation about the legality of it, the constitutionality of it. Give me your perspective on. Guantanamo Bay, its purpose, how you think that fits into the overall global war on terror, as we understand it.
1: Yeah, and I, I am, I am really, really torn on this, and, and quite frankly, this is not something that I have looked at in uh, in, in a long time. Uh, when I was back at the JAG School uh, in 2004, 2005 uh i was the chair of the international law department there wrote a law review article on 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 something very very much like this um but 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 i've been out of it for uh, for a a good long time now the main the main point that i would make is that uh, i have never been convinced and i likely never will be convinced that that the quote-unquote twain shall meet here uh, I I am I am not convinced that a law-abiding nation like ours, with a professional military steeped in ethics and morality, uh, and legality, uh, wedded uh, very very closely to the laws of war, uh, and international treaties and stuff like that, I'm not sure that we'll ever ever get there, uh, on 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 trying to use uh the alternative you know alternative tribunals like um like the like the 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 military tribunals and 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 places like uh, guantanamo i think it's just it's too hard to square everything that we stand for with the united states uh, constitution Uh, one of the things that i'm surprised about uh, is that I'm not at all surprised about the the rancor about gitmo and the and the military commissions and all that kind of stuff, because that's you know because commentators and legal scholars and human rights organizations, everybody should be involved in those discussions. What I am sort of surprised about is that we haven't gotten further in the discussion of how we do square things. Uh, you know the fact that we I think we must admit that we're going to have an ongoing war on terror that we're going to have counterinsurgency operations, counterterrorism operations going on, and and I think we've had a lot of discussions about what are the appropriate military tactics perhaps, but we haven't really had, at least that I've seen, a whole lot of really detailed legal discussions about what then follows on, right, Uh, status, et cetera. Uh, now you know if you look at international law, you look at international law, and, and you and you realize it's always been uh, reactive, right? Um, you know the uh, the Geneva Protocols and and the uh, and and the new rules after World War One were largely reactive to things like mustard gas and, and the and the new technology of airplanes and over the horizon munitions from uh, from from uh, big pieces of artillery. Etc. Uh, et cetera. after World War two, you know, once again, we we tend to revisit things after the after the wars and and refine the rules because of course we we can't really do it during. Uh, but I don't know that we've had, you know those those discussions this time around, and then we should be having them now because we're going to have probably you know repeats of these sorts of things, and we're going to have to consider these dilemmas anew. Um, so so that's really the thing that, uh, that That troubles me most about this.
0: Can you talk about status in relation to like this specific conflict versus something where it would be two more typical nations going to war?
1: Sure. Well, in the in the typical scenario, uh, we would have two regular nation states uh, who are opposing parties to a conflict, probably you know international armed conflict, if you will. Uh, the participants wear uniforms. They wear markings. Uh, they carry uh, they carry arms uh, openly, uh, and they engage in uh, warfare under accepted quote you know quote unquote maybe civilized means using using your weaponry appropriately against military uh, combatants uh, on the on the opposing force, not threatening violence against civilians, not abusing civilians, uh, you know stuff like that. Uh, if the other side surrenders, you take them as prisoners of war. You afford them the, the protections, the status uh, that that they should have, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, in many ways, uh, these new conflicts, the irregular conflicts, terrorism operations, guerrilla warfare, uh, et cetera, expose the the gaps in in things like prisoner of war status and all of that. And that's ultimately how we got to this point, where we're talking about unlawful combatants, and we're and we're talking about fighting forces that are not wearing uniforms, that are not distinguishing themselves from the local citizenry, uh, et cetera. So it's been very, very difficult for folks to shape uh, effective arguments with respect to status and, uh, and, and methods and means of, of warfare, et cetera. And that's why I think that that's, we, we need to have a whole lot more discussion about how it is we're, how is we're going to do this. Uh, you know, in, in, if we applied the, tra- the typical traditional laws of war, uh, then uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and people like that that we uh, uh, that we uh, detained on the battlefield could become prisoners of war, uh, et cetera. They'd have to be afforded the protection, but we could keep them in custody for the period uh, of the you know the duration of the conflict, et cetera. But you know, a lot of those traditional labels don't fit. So I'm not exactly sure where we go uh, from from here, uh, given everything that's happening that and that has happened at Guantanamo, that happened at Bagram, uh, that happened in uh, in other uh, uh, black uh, black facilities elsewhere. It, it's it's a very very vexing problem, and needs uh, needs the, the world's best scholars taking a look at it.
0: Speaking of sort of issues of international law, the actual operation that ended with bin Laden's death, that too had its own sort of international controversy associated with it and the fact that he was in Pakistan. Can you walk me through the thought process, the illegality, the illegality of that specific operation?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting one, particularly because he was in Pakistan and and Pakistan was really the the country of Pakistan was not a a party to a conflict, uh, if you will. Uh, but recall that we have the uh, the uh, authorization for the use of military force, which is very 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 broad. Uh, with you know, was granted by the United States Congress to the Commander in Chief and the U.S. military forces, but not necessarily conferred by any other international party, et cetera. Uh, I think it was in 2008 or so uh, that President Bush issued another order that allowed for. U.S. military forces to operate wherever they had to operate in order to uh, apprehend uh, leader uh, count uh, terrorists uh, and, and folks leading uh, terrorist organizations, uh, etc. So then that brings us up to what September of 2011 or so, and they find out that or they believe that uh, that Osama bin Laden is in Abbottabad, uh, Pakistan. So the uh, and of, and of course the the result is that that he's killed during the operation there and there were uh, there were many legal postmortems uh, uh, th- that were done and ultimately folks really have relied on the fact uh, that uh, and Eric Holder I can r- recall was um, w- was talking about this as well and and he cited the authorization for the use of military force. Uh, as one of the authorities that allowed to uh, allowed US forces to act uh, against uh, all nations and all actors uh, wherever they might be uh, he termed this uh, and rightfully so i think a legitimate military operation uh, and uh, he also said that the the, uh, uh, the executive order 12333 i think it is which bans assassination was not uh, applicable to this particular situation because uh, this was an operation designed to to specifically kill one of the leader of our opposition forces. So I think when you combine the authorization for the use of military force, I think when you combine the, the, the president's uh, declaration or uh, conference of authority on the U.S. forces to conduct these operations wherever, and then you look at it in the way that General Holder did, uh, that bin Laden really was a military leader of an opposing force. Uh, you know, th- there isn't that much gray area for me. I'm, I'm pretty well on board that this was a, an operation that was authorized and, and conducted in the right manner. There will be folks that disagree, of course, and continue mm-hmm. to disagree. Uh, but that one seems pretty solid to me.
0: That's it for part one of our Afghanistan retrospective perspective with Colonel Paul Cantwell. Later on, we will continue our discussion, looking at the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and the issues associated with veterans re-acclimating to civilian life. On part two, I will also be joined by Wendy Reinhardt, a doctoral candidate whose research focuses on cultural competency challenges that veterans face when utilizing, obtaining, or accessing civilian services. Until then, that's all from us here at the Podbucket. Thank you for joining us today. If you have a minute our team wants to hear from you if there's a topic you want the show to cover please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com otherwise feel free to visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests the podvocate is produced by wluw a student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the school of communications at loyola university chicago our senior editors are olivia Ashe, emmett harrington and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Padowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Jasson. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.